Welcome, everybody, to the 11th episode of the Dunkin' with Dom podcast. I'm your host, Dominic Chapone, uh, joined today by another lovely guest, uh, Jeffrey Goose. Welcome to the pod. Appreciate it, Dom. I'm excited to be here. All right, well, it's obviously been a big uh, week or so uh, with hoops because we have March Madness going on, and there's definitely a lot of craziness, especially with all the upsets, and a lot of definitely surprising takes uh, as we approach the Sweet 16 with it being a couple days away. So I just want to take this episode to run down most of the games that happened, uh, look at what happened and what should have happened, uh, and just get some general takes as well as predicting what's going to happen with the rest of the tournament. Basically, let's just take what's happened in the last two weeks and I'll crunch it down into one episode. So I just want to start with you. Uh, what's been your biggest like surprise or like shocking thing so far at the Match Madness tournament heading into the Sweet 16? So my biggest thing, um, and it's less of a surprise, Dom, than really just um, something I saw in early on and didn't necessarily take it myself in my brackets. Uh, my brackets are currently busted, all of them. Um, but a lot of people were obviously shocked by the performance of Oral Roberts, number 15 seed, first taking down Ohio State, who was in almost a quarter of people's Final Four, and then going on to beat Florida. I actually, along with Joe Lenardi, actually thought that they could have pulled off against Ohio State because if you look at teams that do well in March, they play good defense, they hit their shots, and they nail their free throws. Literally, Oral Roberts is the number one team in the country when it comes to free throws. They do not miss. So if you look at the game against Ohio State, both teams took 18 free throws. Ohio State made five less. There's the game. It was a one-point game. So a lot of people are really surprised by this Oral Roberts team, but they came in ready, prepared, and especially in this year of COVID, when you have a lot of freshmen, sophomores, and any age, honestly, that have played this entire season, and they've played in close games, they've played under pressure, but there's no fans, it's not the same environment. So when it comes to these games in March, the pressure can really be getting to these kids, and I think Oral Roberts is ready for the moment. The key for Oral Roberts throughout this whole tournament has been squeaking by and wins because they don't have really any offensive talent. Uh, they're, while they're excellent at free throw shooting, in the game against Ohio State, they shot 36% from the field. They missed, or they made 25 shots, but they took 70 of them. Um, they were 11 of 35 from three, which is below the standard average for a college game. But the key for them has been defense. When they played against Ohio State, Ohio was 5 of 23 from three. Ohio missed half their free throws. Even though, like, on paper, Ohio State was the better team, especially on various aspects. They were a better three-point shooting team. They out-rebounded them by, like, a two, almost a two-to-one advantage. But Oral Roberts is frisky. They have a lot of these, like, athletic guys that play their heart out. They're a very deep team. They don't have a lot of talent, like, an upside. But they definitely have a well-rounded roster that caters well to a March Madness tournament. Definitely. Uh, I want to move on just to talking about, because speaking of Ohio State, there's been a lot of upsets this year. Obviously, the Ohio State one killed a lot of people. Um, but I want to hear your thoughts on the Illinois-Loyola-Chicago matchup, because Illinois, a lot of people had winning because people felt Gonzaga wasn't, didn't have the upside to do well. They thought that they were going to, like, their perfect record would come back to bite them on later in the tournament. But Illinois, the first of the one seeds, gone from the tournament. What do you think limited them from, like, advancing further in the playoffs? Yeah, and so I had personally, I had Illinois as my champion because, um, as Dom said, I kind of had this, the Gonzaga feeling. Every March they come in, they're way overrated, they're amazing. Oh, they played a bad conference, but don't worry about it. And they come in and they lose in the round of 32, they lose in the round of uh, 16. And so I, had, I was not riding high with Gonzaga, but Illinois was my champion. Um, if you look at Loyola Chicago, they play as a team. Um, they have their senior, who is the only uh, carryover starter from the 2018 run, and they just play with intensity and a certain fire where Illinois, I think, went into that game sleeping on on um, Loyola, that Loyola was ready for the moment. They've been here before. Um, and honestly, when it comes down to it, Sister Jean, you know, 
She knows she knows something, and so I wouldn't bet against bet against the sister. And uh, with that, I have them going out in the round of the Elite Eight because that's what uh, Sister Jean has. You know, Loyola Chicago is definitely an interesting team because they have not only a lot of experience of the we've been there before type mentality. Obviously, there's some new players, but also some of the from the old regime when they made the Final Four. But they definitely play with a lot of passion, a lot of energy. The key for them, especially when I was watching the game against Illinois, is that they're the standard, like, we're going to make a ton of three-pointers and we're not going to let anything slide easily. Every shot's going to be contested. We are double-teaming their best players and forcing the non-shooters to make a play or the non-creators to uh, uh, facilitate on offense. They play a, rare, a very rough and, tile, uh, rough and uh, tough style of way where they're going to play with a slow tempo. They're not going to get much in the fast break. They're going to force a lot of turnovers, but they tend to uh, not focus too much on fast break opportunities. They try to slow it down. And they're a really good team. They just have a very good system. And it's one of these cases where it always happens in March Madness. Teams with really good coaches and who have been in that moment before always tend to do well over the newer experience, guys. We've seen teams like, for instance, uh, um, let's say University of Virginia, for instance, where you don't have that experience, you tend to struggle in the March Madness tournament. Definitely. Um, I want to focus on a couple more matchups here. So I just want to run down the bracket and just talk about some of these games. Um, what was your thought on the Wisconsin-North Carolina matchup as the 8-9? Um, because I thought that was one of the more premier, eight, not only 8-9 matchups, but games in the entire tournament. Because those are two really good teams. You had a Wisconsin team in a tough Big Ten conference. And then you had a North Carolina team that had struggled all year but then rebounded toward the end of the season. Uh, and made its way into a very good position in the ACC tournament. How did you feel about Wisconsin blowing North Carolina out? Yeah, and so I thought it was definitely going to be a close game. It was obviously a kind of a highlight 8-9 um, matchup. Uh, I had Wisconsin going into it, and basically my uh, ration, rationale behind that is if you look at Wisconsin, and just kind of on, on a surface level, they've exactly played in a tough, tough Big, big Ten. They've been tested throughout the year, but kind of what I was focusing on is if you look at North Carolina, the, yes, they have turned it around. They had a really tough start. They face adversity. They've come back. But their problem is they have two great big guys and not the same quality of guards that we're used to seeing in Chapel Hill. So these guards who aren't the best three-point shooters, aren't the best facilitators, yes, they're going to out-rebound you in their bigs. They're going to get offensive rebounds and chances. But when it comes down to this, when it comes down to it, the lack of shot making and the lack of offensive facilitation really came back to bite them. Oh, I agree with you there. So in that matchup, actually, not only did was um, University of North Carolina only take 13 three-pointers compared to Wisconsin's 27, so Wisconsin basically made double or uh, took double the amount of three-pointers compared to North Carolina and made more a larger percentage of their three-pointers than North Carolina. Because I agree with you there. There was a big problem with shot making, especially in terms of just like in a moment where like let's say you're down 11 with you know nine minutes left in the second half. And is there a way for somebody to create a shot? And they just did not have any of those guys in their roster. Do you think that that's like a value, like the most valuable tool, like in a March Madness game, is basically having guys who could just like you can give the ball to and say, okay, make a play for somebody. That never mind that, but it's also guys that you can trust down the stretch in games because we watch them on national television. We think they're these kind of um, unfazed athletes, but what it comes down to, these are college players. These are college kids that are facing the same stresses and struggles. Um, and they're just kids. So, uh, as Dom was saying, when you have a quality coach, it's not just drawing up plays, it's not just having good strategy, but it's during the season, throughout practices, testing these guys and really finding out who are your guys so that you know who to give the ball with, with 10, 15 seconds left, and they're not just going to take a bad shot, but actually go down the stretch, because that's what's important in March. It's not about who's going to go to the NBA, it's not about who had a better record during the season. Once you're in the tournament, it's about who can play be- who can play better under pressure 
and towards the end of games when it really matters. That one of those points you brought up is very important because I feel like a lot of times in March Madness, like especially when we're predicting who's going to advance, a lot of people put emphasis on, oh, this guy's going to be a projected pick in the NBA draft, therefore it's have his team advance. I think last year, like or a couple years ago with Trey Young, where when the uh, Oklahoma Sooners got it, everyone's like, oh, they're going to make it to the Sweet 16 or at the very least win two games or so. But sometimes that's not the case. Now, obviously, the inverse of that's true. Like You can look at USC with Evan Mobley this year. They've been fantastic. Jalen Suggs on Gonzaga, they've been a dominant team. They haven't won a, lost a game all year. Uh, even Kate Cunningham's team, they won a couple games before they flamed out. So do you, I, I'm guessing you're, you're more on the stance of like having just one good NBA prospect on a team leads to winning is like an overrated like statement. It should be like falsely or uh, I guess like falsely not true, right? I, I couldn't agree with that more. I think it's especially in college because unlike any sport in basketball, you can have one player take over. Uh, LeBron James, when he was on the 2007 Cavs, went to was their only player he did it again later with the Cavs but you look at basketball and it is a sport where one guy can take over but what you see in college is you need five guys to really play as a team to pass the ball well to shoot the ball well and more important and most importantly shoot free throws well and so yes having the number one or a lottery pick on your team obviously doesn't hurt but when it comes down to it you need every you need contributions from every guy especially when the guy is having a tough game or not playing well because over the course of the seven games of March Madness, that's probably wrong, but over the course of however many games uh, it, it takes to win a championship, you you can't expect the, the guy to have a great seven games and so you're going to need your role players to, to step up. I want to move on to another team that's very experienced on the coaching front, another team that's been there time and time again, Villanova. Uh, there was a lot of questions about whether they were on upset alert in round one, because obviously one of their star players got hurt, but they ended up bouncing a really good Winthrop team by template and then crushed North Texas by over 20 points. How are you liking them as like dark horse uh, NCAA title winners for this year? I, and this is more of a personal thing, and this is kind of how I treat my bracket uh, year to year, is I just didn't get the feeling from them. I didn't get the feeling that they were with it, because if you looked at how they played in their uh, Big East tournament or if you looked at how they were playing down the stretch of their regular season, it just didn't seem like a team that was hungry and didn't seem like a team that was ready to go into the tournament and fight. I was obviously proved wrong. I'm going to eat my words. And I, I, don't, I don't see it. I don't see them making it all the way to the national championship. I think there's too many good teams in their way. However, I do want them to prove me wrong, and I want them to show me because what they've, what they've shown over the course of the last two games is – Everyone has, has said they're going to lose to Winthrop. Everyone said North Texas has a chance. And they just keep hanging in there. They, right? They've been here before. Their coach is a national champ um, a few years ago. They've, this team is ready to go. And I want them to prove me wrong, but I do not think that they're going to make it the, the, the length. The key for Villanova as a championship contender has always been like superiority on offense because I feel like one of the things they've always been good at is like defense. They've always had a very sound defense in terms of stopping guys um, in the paint, uh, crashing the glass, forcing a lot of turnovers. But there's been games like literally there's a correlation between them having a good offense and them winning games and vice versa where when they don't take enough three-pointers, they turn the ball over more than their other team, they stop going to the free throw line, take a lot of mid-rangers, they don't end up being a good team. And I think that's the key for them. I, at least, I don't know how you're feeling about that but like if they have a good offense and they like basically play as one team instead of just going an iso ball they have a good chance to win this year yeah uh, i want to move to further down the bracket here um with arkansas obviously a three seed this year they have been really good so far and they have potential to make the final four just off the way their brackets or the way the bracket played out for them because they don't have to play ohio state or florida because both of those teams got knocked out by oral roberts they're facing oral roberts who while hot is still oral roberts they're not like you know 
no one's scared of them, at least as of yet. Do you think Arkansas has a chance to win this year? And if so, like, why or why not? So I, I actually really like Arkansas. Um, I Going into it, I kind of um, was had no opinions on them, really. They had played a good season. They had played okay in their conference tournament. Um, but if you looked at the game against Colgate, and uh, Colgate was an incredibly hot team that didn't get enough games during the season um, based on COVID and different things like that. Um, but if you looked at how they responded, because Colgate is an, is the number top five, top five team nationally um, in offensive production. So if you look at how they both defended and how they responded to a strong Colgate team, um, Arkansas was down, I think, 10 with about 30 seconds left in the first half of that Colgate game. And right then and there got six easy points and went into half only down four. And if, in the second half, they didn't turn around. So you see a lot of teams that had a, maybe an easier regular season than they expected and are riding to the tournament. They're going to face a non-Power 5 team, and then they just get obliterated because they're not ready for the moment. Arkansas maybe wasn't ready, but then they responded. And I think that response is what's important in March, and I think that really gives them – they showed me that they deserve to keep going and that I think they're going to at least uh, move into the Elite Eight. The key for Arkansas definitely in this postseason has been what do they do when the shots aren't falling in. Because in both the game against Colgate and in the game against Texas Tech, the three-pointer was non-existent. They're easily in this tournament one of the worst three-point shooting teams. Not only do they not take a lot, but they don't make a lot. But they go a lot to the free throw line. They Sometimes teams that, like you said, one of the key stats for March Madness is teams that can get to the free throw line and make a ton of free throws. They have a lot of success. This is in terms of just getting free points because in the end, like it's the only uncontested shot you're going to have all game uh, for the most part. So I think that if Arkansas can continue its momentum of basically attacking the glass, continuing to find their way to the free throw line, um, preventing a lot of easy shots, because they're not, their offense is very hot coldy, where there's games like, let's say the Colgate game, where they're down 10 the whole game, and then they end up building momentum in the second half, and then they win. And then there's other games where at Texas Tech, it looks like a dogfight, like a 94, a 1994 style NBA game, where it's, you know, like the score is 85-83 after like a long time. So I think definitely that's going to be the case for Arkansas going forward. I want to move further down the bracket here and talk about, uh, obviously, our surprise team. We've already touched upon them a little bit, but Oral Roberts has definitely done well this year. Um, let's first look at some of their opponents they've played. What did you feel like downplayed Ohio State's chances this year of winning? Because a lot of people didn't expect Ohio State to lose. And I get it, Oral Roberts is a very talented team, don't get me wrong, but Ohio State, a lot of people had as like a second-tier contender outside of the Illinoises and Gonzagas of the world. So what do you feel is like their biggest problem this year? Um, so... Basically, I think they just came in un unprepared, and they came in to a, top, to a hot opponent, and they came in slow. Because if you look at Ohio throughout the season, and then also especially in their uh, Big Ten championship, they were ready. They had had a tough game in, uh, against Illinois in their conference championship. They were dominating team, good teams in their conference. Um, and so, honestly, I think they just came into this thinking, who is this Oral Roberts team, whatever, we're looking ahead. Um, and then they just got beat on the free throw line. Because teams, we've seen teams have bad games and overcome upsets. Um, but Ohio State leaving nine points, they were shot 50% from uh, the free throw line. And so leaving nine points out there, that's that's their game. They could have literally made two more, and that's the game. So I think in that case, you just had a hot team that was a little too high on themselves and got surprised. And Oral Roberts, credit to where credit is due, they don't shoot the ball lights out. They don't play amazing defense. But they made free throws when it counts, and they were the better team on that day, and that's why I got to play the game. 
Ohio State was definitely a big question all year for college basketball because the key for them was inconsistency. There was weeks where they would beat a bunch of good teams and look competitive, and then there was games where they would should have won and said they lost by 11 points or lost by 9 points. And this was the case because they had a great Big Ten tournament, and then they come into the a March Madness tournament thinking that they're, like, you know, all hot stuff, and then they flame out to an Ohio Ro- an Oral Roberts team that's just not talented at all. Um, do you think this is, like, going to happen in the future? Because obviously, more likely than not, second seeds don't usually flame out to a 15 seed. It's, like, one of the rarest things out there like do you think this is just a once in a lifetime or once like in a decade or so type thing or do you think this is just a case of like it's going to start happening more and more often i think it'll kind of keep on the same pace it's at where every kind of few years five to ten years it'll happen because it's especially in college you have teams that are riding high on themselves and are maybe a little too cocky a little too arrogant and don't take their competition seriously and then you have teams that um are are good teams quality teams but they're not in a power five conference they're not getting any sort of national attention throughout the year because they're in such a small market that are just ready on that day. That they um, oftentimes in these higher seeded um, teams, you'll see a lot of seniors, you'll see a lot of kids that are ready for this moment, waiting for B to be in this tournament, and aren't going to relish it because they're thinking about the next round or whatever. And so I think we'll, we'll we won't see a spike in these. Um, but it's important to always look at these 15, 14 seeds because they're hungry. They're always hungry. And you'll see oftentimes these two and three seeds that were maybe a little upset they weren't a one seed. They're not really focused and not like locked in on this on the, their first round matchup, and it always comes to bite them. I want to move further down the bracket here. Let's focus a little bit on the Midwest region, which is our second region to go over. Um, we'll skip the Illinois and Lowell Chicago piece of it. We've already done that. I want to talk about Oregon State a little bit because they knocked off uh, both the number four and the number five seed in their bracket, uh, including a 14-point win over Tennessee in the first round. And they also have a very good chance to make the Elite Eight here because they're facing a loyal Chicago team that, while good, is a fairly reasonable opponent. They're not taking on, let's say, a Baylor or a Gonzaga. Uh, what do you like about Oregon like so far in this tournament, or at least Oregon State in this tournament? Yeah, I mean, I I really wasn't had didn't have my eyes on them because um, they're they're just they're just playing well. Um, that's all I can really say. Um, I really haven't. Um, I, I've been I've been surprised obviously, but there's here's another team that just getting hot at the right moment because, um, and the, kind of a similar with Georgetown is that you have these teams that weren't didn't have a great regular season, weren't anywhere near the bubble but because they won their conference tournament. Obviously, uh, obviously they get their automatic bid, um, and Georgetown kind of flamed out. They weren't ready for the moment, but Oregon State was riding hot and is going to keep riding that. So um, I'm interested to see what they're going to do against Loyola. Um, I think Loyola is going to end up getting that win, but. Um, again, prove me wrong because it's March, baby. Well, I want to bring up one of your points because uh, the game that stood out to me with Oregon State was against the Oklahoma uh, or Oklahoma State because they faced Kate Cunningham. There's a lot of hype around him. But the key was, again, the free throws. Uh, in the game, Oregon only shot 41% from the field. They shot 6 of 20 from 3, which is awful compared uh, to the opponent. But 32 of 35 from the free throw line, uh, Oklahoma State was 26 of 38. So basically, Oregon State shot close to near perfect, and uh, Oklahoma was more in the like 30, or 68 to 69%. So it's, again, showing that the free throws definitely matter uh, in March Madness, especially just in the late in game where you're up 6 you need to close up the game. you got to find a way to make some free throws. And, and definitely. And if you look at kind of the 16 teams that have moved on, five of those 16 are in the um, top 50 na- uh, nationally for free throw percentage. And kind of on the reverse of that, um, Rutgers has already lost, even though they shouldn't have. But we got Creighton and USC, who I think are both vulnerable in this round because of how poor they, poorly they shoot. Both of the teams I just mentioned in Creighton and USC 
all rank in the bottom of uh, National Division One free throw percentages. So even though you have, I think, two good teams and two teams that could be competitive, I worry and think it will come. It'll, they'll regret, you know, not the extra practice in the gym because Creighton and USC, I think, will be vulnerable based on their very poor free throw shooting. Let's move on to, obviously, our team here. This is the last thing we're going to talk about here. But the Syracuse Orange in the Midwest bracket uh, taking on two very tough opponents and doing very well and looking like they might be the dark horse team of the year right here. Uh, what's been your general thoughts with Syracuse so far in the March Madness tournament? So everyone kind of rips on uh, Syracuse for only playing in March, only being ready in March. But that's what – I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree that Syracuse comes out in March every year because Jim Beheim coaches this team for March. And it's not that he has a special pep talk or anything like that, but Jim Beheim's teams are built for March because they hit their shots when it matters. They play good defense, which keeps you in every single game. And and, and obviously, as huge Syracuse fans myself, Syracuse by a million, but in, in this game against Houston, it's going to be very important in rebounding. Um, this isn't talked about a whole lot, but... Syracuse, will, they will play well offensively. They'll play well in their 2-3 zone against a non-conference opponent who hasn't seen the 2-3 as much. Those will be, I think, givens. But Syracuse, they don't really have a center, and honestly, they don't really have a power forward. And so they've been really um, vulnerable all year with rebounding. And if you look at their eight regular season losses, they've been out-rebounded by an average of 12. And their one um, ranked win this season, which was against uh, Virginia Tech, Syracuse out-rebounded them by two. So if you look at this game against Houston, who plays incredible defense, um, only allows about 55 um, points against their opponents, um, it's going to be essential to get these defensive rebounds and get offensive rebounds so there's second-chance efforts against a very tough defense. Yeah, that's definitely been the storyline for Syracuse all year, both in terms, like, in many fronts. So first off, I agree with you there. They are a team that's prepared for March. Like, literally, if you notice in games during the regular season, like, they look slow on defense. There was moments where, like, they didn't try almost. And then the playoffs, it's been fantastic, especially on the defensive guards with Joe Girard and Buddy Beheim, where they're at the top of the key, forcing a lot of turnovers. The No team on, their, on the opponent's side can get any rhythm in. It's either with... Uh, lucky three-pointers or, you know, an accidental mistake on the offensive glass. So what do you think is the key for Syracuse to beating Houston besides uh, crashing the glass? Do you think it's just uh, controlling it more on the offensive end, like controlling the tempo? Do you think it's just out-rebounding their opponent in general? Like, what do you think is the big takeaway? So uh, it's going to be rebounding. It's going to be free throws. Like I said, that's my big thing is free throws. Um, and then it's going to get um, – if Joe Girard can figure out how to play basketball again, that would be great because I think he's someone who's had a, a – difficult season um you know after last season he had an amazing season was ready to be um a, a problem this year um and he just hasn't he didn't come out the same way that everyone anticipated and kind of buddy um kind of filled in that gap and then some um so i think having production from buddy obviously um will be essential but then all like if we can get if you can see griffin or joe gerard any of these guys that aren't are, are good and are have been in this moment but can kind of have that extra um bring it to that extra level. Um, and then on the Buddy front, I think when you talk about teams responding and teams ready for the moment, Buddy Beheim had three points in the first half against West Virginia. Um, and after the previous game um, against SDSU, Buddy like absolutely lit it up the whole first half. And so he really kind of struggled in that first half against West Virginia, but then came right back out, scored 20 plus, covered my bet with a 19 and a half um, point. So, when you talk about teams that are ready and players that have been in this moment and are cool under pressure, 
Buddy Beheim, you can't ask anything else. He's been around this team, obviously, his whole life. Um, he's been practicing with Melo. Um, so I think he, the, the Syracuse team has the legs to go to the finals, and I'm, I'm excited to see what happens. I want to talk a little bit about Buddy Beheim here in an NBA context. Every year in March Madness, there's always one to two guys whose draft stock dramatically improves because of the March Madness tournament. I think Trey Young, you can make a case, was outside in the 7 or 8 range and ended up being a number 3 pick with the team even trading up for him. Uh, Dante Givincenzo with that Villanova team, he ended up being picked in the late first round after basically being a mid-second round pick his whole career. Do you think Buddy Beheim could be that guy this year where a team says we're going to take him at 33, let's say, or at 29? Because there's always one of those guys every year who just like looks ready for the NBA. And they're usually like 21 or 22. They show a few NBA skills. They have the potential to be uh, really good role players. Uh, so what do you think about that as like, in, like as a more futuristic possibility? Especially if Syracuse, let's say, makes a big deep run. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree that I think Buddy is a perfect representation of this because you look at Buddy's regular season, he played well. He averaged around 16 points, you know, he has assists, he has rebounds. But you look at in March, and never mind, and, and in the conference um, tournaments, never mind his point production, never mind his um, shooting percentages, which is absolutely lights out, uh, over 50% from three for a few games. Um, but then you look at, like I said, how he responds. Um, a lot of guys struggle just with the mental, as, as a as in any industry, but especially in sports, the mental aspect of this profession is insanely difficult. So when you have in, in in that moment the biggest game of his career against West Virginia, trying to get to the Sweet 16, Buddy only scores three in the first half and is struggling from the field. He goes out and has 20 plus in the second half. I think if I'm an NBA GM, I look at that, and never mind his skills that he's shown, his perfect shot form, his, uh, his stellar defense, I look at that and say, okay, this is a kid that's ready for the NBA and ready for the next level. And I think that mentality, never mind his abilities, but that mentality is something that makes him NBA ready. Let's move on to the other half of the uh, March Madness bracket here, starting at the top with Gonzaga. Uh, two very dominating wins. They're obviously now the presumptive favorites, and they were. They have been the presumptive favorites, and now that Illinois is gone, you can make a case that this is their tournament to lose here. Uh, do you think that's the case, or do you think that there's some questions about this team moving forward? I think this is totally their tournament to lose. I think that, um, that Gonzaga is... Um, ready to rock. My only thing is the is the Gonzaga effect, is that every year we see this team have pretty much an unbeaten season and then come in and they're just not ready. Um, I don't necessarily think that's what they're, where they're at this year, but um, my, inner, my inner college basketball mind and my inner basketball self doesn't trust the word Gonzaga and winning. Um, but honestly, they've, they've shown me that they can go the distance. So I, I, I want that for them. You know, I, I want to see them succeed, but my only hesitation is just their name. I want to actually talk about that a little bit because I've always made the case and I told people, like I've made my stance clear on this, I'd rather Gonzaga had one or two losses in the regular season than go undefeated because they, there's a lot of times where teams that are too dominant in uh, the regular season when it comes to a postseason context, they struggle because they didn't have like that, we got to wake our ass up and actually like get something done. Um, even like a case like with like the 92 or the 96 Bulls, they lost to teams like the Hornets and like the Raptors who were like bottom 500 teams before they ended up, you know, winning 20 straight games as one point and you know crushing it in the playoffs do you think that that's the case or am i just like you know theorizing it a bit too much or making it too complicated no no no. i think that's a stellar point i think if you look at teams that go into either march madness or any sort of playoff context um there uh, there's a huge difference in this that 
teams that have been unbeaten and are kind of expected to win whatever, a lot of teams will do this where they play not to lose and are afraid of losing rather than playing to win and are looking to just play their game. So I think that, I don't think this will affect them that much, but I think you'll see this a lot of times, and this is how upsets happen, is that you'll have teams that just start from the get-go, play to not lose, and that ends up having them play um, very passively and not being aggressive in ways that I think a team needs to be. But I don't think that's going to be Gonzaga, but I think that's a potential thing to watch for, is that they're not going to be aggressive enough, they're not going to come out um, fighting, because they're playing more passively, and I think that's we'll have to see. Uh, I want to focus on the bottom of the bracket here before we move on to our final region, and that is the uh, Oregon-USC matchup. Uh, obviously, two totally different teams. USC uh, beat an opponent in Drake that had a limited ceiling, and then they ended up crushing Kansas by 25. And then in the case of Oregon, they didn't play their first game because there was a COVID problem with VCU, and then they ended up nuking Iowa by 15. So we have two teams very hot right now beating better opponents uh, both on paper and in the actual game itself. Um, how are you feeling about both those rosters and like who can go far? Um, I think they're both good teams. I think that uh, USC has been tested. A lot of people, even before the playing game had happened, said this team is soft and they're going to be upset. Um, and they went out and showed that, no, they deserve to be here and they deserve to keep going. Uh, and then Wright dominated a, um, a blue-chip Kansas team that which honestly, quite frankly, wasn't ready to play that game. Um, and then the other side, I think um, we kind of, oh, Oregon got so lucky they got to skip their first game. That to me, is it was a disadvantage that they weren't that they were caught off guard. They weren't um, prepared for that, and so going to the next game against Iowa, who was an ins- an insanely good team um, for coming from the Big Ten, um, but Oregon came out ready. They were ready for that moment. They didn't let it phase them that they um, had taken such a long pause based on um, not playing against VCU, um, and they didn't. They weren't saying, oh, we're not ready to be here, we don't deserve this. They came out fighting. Um, and so I think both of these teams are gritty, both of these teams want this. Um, and I think just the, the whoever comes out on that day ready to go will uh, end up winning. I want to focus on this last uh, region here, which is the East region, because it's got four of the most fascinating teams out of the entire tournament. It's a Michigan team that blew that blew out their first opponent and then beat a really good LSU team, but obviously is missing one of their most important players. You got a Florida State team that has looked really good all year and is my personal dark horse, where if they won it, I wouldn't be surprised. You have an Alabama team that's been very consistent and crushed both their first two opponents, and then you have a team in UCLA where they're good, they won a very good playing game against Michigan State, but then they also have had a cruise control on their way uh, to their what they're at right now. They beat a BYU team that didn't really have a lot of upside, and many people thought they were going to upset them. And then Albion Christian they got to face because Texas never uh, made it past the first round. Um, so what are your general thoughts on like that little East region here, especially with the Michigan State-Florida matchup at the very top of that bracket? Yeah, so I think um, Michigan, I saw them as vulnerable. I had um, LSU beating them because I think um, oftentimes you'll see a star player go down and especially teams that have like really solid recruiting and all that stuff, you'll see usually freshmen around them and not the same type of um, experience and um, cool under pressure. So I thought that Michigan was definitely vulnerable after losing a star player in the livers, um, but they responded. They responded and said, nope, we next man up, we're gonna keep going. So I think that they're in this for the long haul and I, um, think that they could potentially have the legs, but I, I think that Florida's, Florida State has the edge in this one only because, so I was I was riding high in Colorado. I was um, kind of last minute tinkering between having Colorado or FSU going to my final four because I thought both of those teams are these dark horse teams that have been tested, that shoot the ball well, that play efficiently. 
Um, and I think that FSU beating Colorado is, is not to be taken lightly. I think that both of those teams are Final Four contenders. And I think that Michigan, even though they're playing well, they responded well, I think FSU is riding way too high. And I think FSU gets that win in Michigan and really has a strong chance to go into the Final Four. Um, and then other teams. Oh, and then UCLA, Alabama. Um, so then with uh, UCLA and Alabama. Alabama, I thought, was pretty overrated coming into this tournament. I thought that they won a soft uh, conference in um, the SEC. Um, I thought they got they got lucky um, in how LSU played that um, tournament. Um, and so I kind of was, was kind of questioning whether to have them bounce against Iona. Um, but they proved me wrong. They've kept going, and they've been shooting the ball well. Um, so I think that will be a good game. I think UCLA, too, has proven this, that um, a lot of people had BYU losing if it was Michigan State. UCLA obviously won, and people were like, oh, well, that, that was that was whatever. BYU's going to roll over them. And they didn't. Um, and I think that, that uh, these teams, these 11 seeds, or these teams that have to play in, or even just have been slept on, come in with this grit and a, a kind of a chip on their shoulder that won't let a team uh, to, uh, in Alabama, a two seed, their um, prestige won't bother them. Um, and so I think UCLA is going to play their game, and if they kind of stick to their shots, um, get the free throws, uh, play good defense, they're going to have a really strong chance. Uh, but I think Alabama will end up squeaking out a win. Yeah, Alabama is basically the king of what has been a narrative all year for March or for uh, college basketball, which is that uh, the SEC definitely improved more than we thought they were going to do. Uh, LSU and Tennessee are two very good teams that um, definitely uh, outreached the expectations we all had for them. Alabama, especially under the leadership of their coach, who is currently a candidate for Coach of the Year, they've been absolutely amazing this year. Um, but I agree with you there to an extent. I think that the Alabama run, while great, is still a little overrated, especially because their opponents, the, the margin of who they're playing got better, but the upside of who they played isn't the same. Uh, whereas you look at a, a conference like the ACC or the Big Ten, a lot of their guys, and even the Pac-12, a lot of those top, top teams are really good, even if a, they, a lot of the teams in those conferences respectfully did not, uh, or very uh, underachieved, I guess, if you could, will. Um, I, I'm agreeing with you there on the Florida State. I really like Florida State this year. Uh, heading into the March Madness tournament, they're one of the best three-point shooting teams in the country. All of their starters made at least one three-pointer a game. They have a bunch of guys who are scoring in double figures. They take care of the ball really well. Uh, and Michigan's definitely got a lot of vulnerabilities. I feel like there's times where they miss a lot of rotation on defense, been very inconsistent all year. Um, their three-point shooting is very hot-cold. There are games where like they'll shoot maybe at the average percentage, but then there's like quarters where they can't make it the entire time. Um, so, I'm, I mean, I'm going to bounce back to you real quick. I don't know how you're feeling, but I like Florida State this year as like that dark horse final fourth team this year. Oh, definitely. I think, um, I think like I said, them beating Colorado is not, um, okay, who, who's the next opponent after that? I think that needs to be taken very seriously, and I think both of those teams could have gone to the Final Four, and I think no doubt Florida gets to the Florida State gets to the Final Four um, after the adversity they've faced, the three-point shooting, as Dom mentioned. Um, and then just, I've just got that feeling. I've just got that feeling. Um, but it's going to be tough when they face uh, Syracuse, who is my uh, national championship winner. Okay, let's uh, wrap up this up here by talking about the Sweet 16, uh, just going through each of the different matchups. So I'm going to first run down uh, for each region what the matchups are, and then we can do it like quickly, like 30 seconds each, nothing crazy. Um, so in the South region, Baylor at the one seed is taking on Villanova as the five seed, and then three-seeded Arkansas is taking on the surprise of the year of uh, 15-seeded Oral Roberts. Uh, let's start with Baylor and Villanova. Who do you think is you're going to have that was winning that game? I think Baylor. I think uh, Villanova... They proved me wrong, but I don't think they have the legs. Um, Baylor's too good. Um, proved me wrong, though, Villanova. 
Uh, and then Arkansas Oral Roberts. I'm going to take it. You're going to say Arkansas. Do you think Oral Roberts has a chance, or are you rooting for the Oral Roberts uh, train here? I'm always rooting for Oral Roberts. Um, I love the always the underdog story. Um, I do think Arkansas will get the win, but I, I'll tell you this. If Oral Roberts can keep it close with their um, with their uh, field goal percentage from the field, can keep it close on defense, we know they're going to uh, shoot lights out from the line. So if they can get to the line and then keep it close otherwise, that's what will have, uh, give them a chance. But I, I think they're going to flame out and not beat this Arkansas team. But you heard it here first. You're not going to be surprised if, if – uh, um, they end up getting the win. Let's move on to the Midwest region. We have two great matchups here. Uh, the 8 seed Loyola Chicago is taking on 12 seed Oregon State. And then Syracuse, our team at the 11 seed, is facing a very uh, good Houston team at the 2 seed. Um, starting off with Loyola Chicago and Oregon State, who do you have winning that game? I've got Loyola. Um, I'm not going to bet against Sister Jean, um, at least until the Elite Eight. Um, I think that their, um, their center is just, he's a strong leader and someone who's been here before. Um, I think that they're just, they're hot. Both teams are hot in this situation, but I think that um, it will be a close game, um, but I think Loyola will play more composed and will end up getting the win. And, and how about the Syracuse matchup? Um, so my bias aside, um, Houston has played, they play in a very, very easy conference, um, but that obviously we've seen that doesn't, um, that shouldn't disqualify you from um, a national championship as we saw with Villanova um, a few years ago. I think that Houston, who is an insanely tough opponent, um, plays lights out defense, shoots the ball well. Um, I think they're on upset alert only because of how good Syracuse is playing. That um, even still, a lot of people are sleeping on Syracuse. ESPN gave Syracuse less than a 20% chance of winning this game. Um, but Syracuse is, again, a team that is ready for March and that they play very, very solid defense. They shoot the ball lights out. Buddy Bayheim is shooting unbelievably well and they make their free throws and I think that if like I said rebounding can be under control if it's kept within five because also um, Houston is a team that really really banks on um, offensive rebound and defensive rebounding with their such um, stellar defense so Syracuse needs to really focus on that Bayheim um, Jim needs to really focus that on that in practice um, but I think if that can be done Syracuse gets this win and I think if they do that they're really poised for um, a national championship run. Uh, on to the next half of the bracket here. In the Western region, first-seeded Gonzaga taking on the fifth-seeded Creighton team. And then, out, or, and also we have uh, USC and Oregon, the sixth and seventh seeds, respectively, facing each other. Um, how do you think about Gonzaga against Creighton? Uh, so Creighton's done. Um, I haven't liked them since the beginning. Um, I'm very biased just because I had them losing the first round, and I'm really upset that they keep winning. Um, Gonzaga is going to take care of business. Um, they're the best team in the country right now. Um, and as long as they don't kind of come in too cocky, they still have to play uh, against a very solid opponent in Creighton. But Creighton does not shoot the ball well from, free, from the free throw line. They leave points on the floor. Um, we saw them play incredibly sloppy in their conference tournament game, and I don't think that they're going to be able to turn it around against literally the best team in the country um, for that game. And then how about you feeling about you for USC and Oregon? Um... I'm t I'm very tempted to say Oregon here just because of my my philosophy surrounding free throws. UC um, uh, U USC does not shoot um, free throws effectively, um, but prove me wrong because I think that we've seen teams that on paper don't look great, obviously, and we've seen this with um, teams around the country that respond and play well. Um, I think Oregon, too, is also poised um, to do well. So I think this will be a very close game down the stretch. Um, and I'll actually give the edge to USC. Uh, I'm going to change my mind. 
because um, I think they just have the guy to get it done. Um, he's been tested under pressure, and I think in this situation, having an in, in, uh, NBA lottery pick, top five pick, um, will obviously serve them well because I think this will be a close game that will be decided in the last 30 seconds. And finally, in the East region, we have Michigan as the one seed taking on a very hot Florida State team at the four seed, and then UCLA at the 11 seed is going to be uh, going up against Alabama at the two seed. Uh, starting off with Michigan and Florida State, uh, is Michigan on upset alert, yes or no? Uh, yes. Simple answer, yes. I think nothing against Michigan. I think they're a solid program that just sucks at football. Um, I think that FSU is just going to run the table. I think that um, Michigan is kind of playing um, a little a little weak right now. I think that without um, Livers, they're just they're not they're not the Michigan we saw during the regular season. Um, and FSU is just way too hot and playing way too well um, for Michigan to contend with. Um, obviously, Michigan's still a one seed. They still deserve the respect. Um, but I think FSU wins this game um, somewhat easily. Um, and then um, for the next game with UCLA. Um, I, I, don't, I think UCLA is done. I think that, um, well, if you look at the Pac-12, they've been playing amazing across um, the tournament, but I think UCLA is done. All righty, Goose, thank you so much for joining the pod. It's been a pleasure. Before the days of Giannis's dunks, LeBron's athletic chase down blocks, and Julius Irving's reverse layups, there was Elgin Baylor. Before the Showtime Lakers took over the league by storm in the 80s, Elgin was leading them to prosperity for an entire decade during the 60s. Before Kobe and Shaq led the Lakers to four NBA Finals in five seasons, it was Mr. Baylor himself who doubled that number and led L.A. to eight Finals versus in 12 years. Before MJ was scoring like no tomorrow in the 90s, Elgin was scoring 27.4 points a night for his entire career. Besides Bill Russell, no African American contributed more to the NBA and the game of basketball at large than Elgin. Besides Wilden MJ, no player averaged more points a night for their careers. Out of everyone ranked inside my top 20, he's the only player that didn't win a ring just by coming so close to winning one so many times. Out of the best small forwards ever, Elgin's name always seems to get lost in the fold. No legend from the 50s and 60s have been more underappreciated, undervalued, and totally forgotten about like Elgin Baylor. It's a sad reality, but nonetheless is a true one. The likes, and, the likes of teammates and rivals understood just how dominant, talented, and passionate Elgin was during his time in the NBA. Here's how these individuals described him. Jerry West, quote, He was one of the most spectacular shooters the game has ever known. I hear people talking about forwards today, and I haven't seen many that can compare with him. Bill Sharman, quote, I say without reservation that Elgin Baylor is the greatest quarterman who ever played pro basketball. Tommy Hawkins, quote, he had the greatest variety of shots of anyone. He would take it in and hang and shoot from all these angles, put spin on the ball. Elgin had incredible strength. He could post up Bill Russell. He can pass like magic and dribble with the best guards in the league. In terms of his role within the context of how the NBA would evolve, Elgin set the stage for every athletic forward that could dunk, pass, and score. He paved the way for the likes of Dr. J, Bird, LeBron, KD, Kawhi, and every other legendary forward who led their team to regular season and postseason success. Even some of the Lakers superstars that would dominate future decades in the league understood Elgin's greatness and influence within the NBA. Magic Johnson, quote, You did things that Dr. J, Michael Jordan, Kobe, and myself couldn't do, and I tried to do it. I just couldn't hang that long in the air. Michael Cooper, quote, He was really a player who was kind of unguardable, the likes of a Jordan or a Kobe. Shaquille O'Neal, quote, most of these young guys today don't know what Elgin and guys like him did to make the game what it is. 
And I was once one of those guys, so I know. He wasn't just any role model for future NBA players. He was the role model for future NBA players. Statistically, he's one of the most dominant players of all time. His career stats have only been matched by just one other legend, Will Chamberlain. He scored the most points in an NBA Finals game ever. His 61-point performance was the most points scored in any playoff game for a little over two decades until some kid named Michael Jordan went bonkers and scored 63 points against the Celtics in 86. Of course, most fans will remember Jordan's performance against Bird, but never the fact that Elgin was practically just as dominant in the early 60s. He scored 24 points or more per game in a season 11 times, including a three-year peak where he scored 34.8 points in 1961, 38.3 points in 1962, and 34.0 points in 1963. He helped the Lakers go from mediocrity to a championship contender overnight. He never won an MVP, but came super close so many times. To a similar extent, Elgin helped the Lakers so many times in the playoffs, ultimately falling short to the greatest NBA dynasty of all time. Saying that Elgin was a career loser or that he couldn't lead you to a title would be, quite frankly, historically inaccurate. If you need proof of how great he was in the finals, look, 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 look no further than 1962, where Elgin averaged 40.6 points per game in a series against Boston and fell just one overtime period in Game 7 short of winning the title that year. Elgin's longevity is also strikingly forgotten about. Here is a year-by-year -year comparison of his rookie stats with his 1970 stats, the last year in which Elgin Baylor was an All-Star. In 1959, at just age 24, he averaged 24.9 points, 15.0 rebounds, and 4.1 assists. In 1970, at already the age of 35 years old, Elgin was still averaging 24 points, 10.4 rebounds, and 5.4 assists. In tragic fashion, Elgin's Bayer's career was cut short. A devastating knee injury began to affect him in 1964 and plagued him for the rest of his career. Eventually, the basketball miles began to rack up real quick. After the 70 season, Elgin played a combined 11 games in 1971 and 72. In 72, Elgin knew that he would never return to his old self, so he walked away from the game of basketball forever. It's one of the most selfless acts in NBA history. Elgin chose to end his own NBA career in order to maximize the potential of the career of others. The 1972 Lakers may have won the title, but Elgin played just as vital of a role on that team as anybody else even if he only played nine games and wasn't physically on the court once he retired. As Joe Barthanan from Breacher Report so graciously explained in 2011, if you wish to argue that Baylor's contribution to his team was minimal, as it was only during nine, or nine games of the season, just ask the 69 Celtics, 77 Blazers, 78 Bullets, 79 Sonics, or the 95 Rockets if you think nine regular season games are important. Those teams were just nine games or fewer away from being in ineligible for the playoffs and went on to win the title. To discredit his contributions to the 1971-72 Lakers team by not calling him a champion is inaccurate and ought to be righted. Hopefully, people will someday realize that Baylor, though inhibited by injuries during his last season forcing him to retire, did ultimately achieve the goal of being a part of an NBA championship team. If there's one quote that I had to pick from that, ac that accurately describes Elgin Baylor within the context of NBA history, it would be from Victor Reznov in Call of Duty Black Ops, when he famously says the following line, Betrayed, forgotten, abandoned. Despite his greatness, Elgin was indeed betrayed, forgotten, and abandoned. Hopefully this book's ode to his career provides him some well-needed justice and gives him the credit that he so graciously deserves. Now, anytime you watch Kevin Durant score 30 points or see Giannis drop a monstrous hammer of a dunk on his opponent, just remember that Elgin was doing the exact same thing 
over 50 years ago. Elgin Baylor, may you rest in peace.